Hello, just a quick note before the show starts to say that we recorded our section on the headlines before the Tier 4 announcements for England, so uh, I think most of the discussion around that is still relevant, but um, just a heads up that we didn't know that at the time of this recording, uh, and so that's why we might be talking a bit about what the plans for Christmas were uh, and not having an exact answer. But yes, uh, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Unparliamentary Language, a podcast that asks the question, when is a deadline not a deadline? When it's a Brexit deadline. I hope you appreciated that I had the proper Christmas cracker-like pause there for everyone to guess. You did, thank you. I'm glad. But viewers can, viewers and listeners can make their own bang um, if they want to uh, in the middle of that, uh, or, or wear a silly hat, or, or, or do anything they wish. But uh, yeah, it's been, boy, has, have things happened since we last spoke, or, or and not happened, but we'll get in, or, into all of that later, um, relating to our uh, yeah, lovely journey. Yeah, we will. <laughs> um, so moving into our headlines, uh, our first headline, it's not, not actually a headline. I, I haven't pulled out a particular news article here, but I do have a tweet uh, from the Trans Learning Partnership um, who had several uh, members of theirs, um, well, at least well, at least one of their colleagues and, and some, some professors uh, presenting in front of the UK parliamentary committees. Um, uh, and I watched along with it. And um, this is to do with the GRA reform. So I, I, are you aware of the GRA, Rob? Um, so I'm going to say what, what I thought it was, and then you can put me right. But isn't it, is it about having like recognition of of what gender you are, they are making that far more difficult to do than it previously was or keeping it the same. I remember that there are some ridiculous laws when it comes to actually, uh, you know, coming out as the ident- as the gender you actually identify with. It was my understanding, yeah. like you have to live like that for five years or something before they either, even consider it. And that can be a huge stress on people going through that for five years and they just want it recognised. And the government, I thought, was going to make it easier and then they stopped and went now we're going to keep it the same but that's my very basic understanding yeah so so um the gender recognition act was brought in in 2004 uh and um this was at the time i, I mean basically uh, so in 2004 i was not really paying attention to this kind of thing um let, let's put it that way so i i don't know what the the mood around that was at the time uh it was obviously progress uh but i think it's one of these things where it's progress of a kind uh there are lots of problems with it um and 16 years later it's not fit for purpose there are lots of problems with it um other people will be able to go into far more uh depth on it but basically it's about getting a a gender recognition certificate which is basically a government issued thing that says yes yes I'm, I'm i'm a different gender to what is listed on my birth certificate um thank you very much and then obviously you can go on and live your life uh and and transition and do all these other things um and the problem is it's kind of it's required ba- basically this is a certificate saying the government says you have passed all the requirements uh to have, be recognized as the other gender and as you say it has various timeouts uh, uh t- timelines and things um and and basically <laughs> a lot of problems with it um but it was better than have, not having it in the first place so it, it was a step forward but uh now 16 years later it's definitely like we could be doing better than this other countries are doing better than this and earlier in the year there was a whole thing about having uh gender recognition act reform um there was a big consultation and basically on average the majority of the population are fine with um uh, trans people defining themselves etc uh, which is what trans people want they want to just be able to say i am this and they'd have to go through a legal process to start that because that's that's very much the start of everything else is being able to live as your gender uh, and not like have it challenged by the courts and things like that. There's whole, so much stuff going on. Um, and for these people with gender dysphoria, just being able to say this is my gender now and self-assign would be great. Uh, that's what people want. Um, but the problem is there is a vocal uh, conservative, as in uh, uh, little c conservative kind of uh, minority who are like, oh, no, this is not OK for various reasons. They, um, I, Which basically I don't want to go into because I know it would be triggering to people who are trans listening. I, I just we don't want to go into their arguments. Yeah, but uh, I would say they fall on the side of bad. Um, <laughs> Universally uh, shitty, I would uh, describe them as. Yeah, but sorry, I know this is not a you podcast but yeah i just the bad faith arguments i feel like th- there are there are arguments made by that side where i'm like this is not a situation that happens in real life i feel like you are this is an argument in bad faith 
yeah, you will see those stupid things about like bathrooms and stuff. And it's like, you know, the people who people who receive the most um, uh, attacks in bathrooms are, in fact, like trans people. <laughs> there's it's like you, they, they, there's always they present this fake argument of well, what if a man said he was a woman and then went in and assaulted someone? And you're like, well, there's literally nothing stopping him doing that now. Like, like th- th- this situation doesn't happen. You've just invented it um, so that you can try and be like, oh, we're protecting people, which, yeah, it, it, it's a whole problem. It's very problematic. I don't necessarily have enough time to go into everything here, and I'm probably not the right person to to give you a rundown of it. There's lots of stuff out online. It'd be very easy to find. Um, but basically, yeah, there was there was going to be reform. The government is going a bit conservative on it. You know, they are the conservatives after all. And everyone kind of went, no. And like I was involved, you know, some of my friends like shared uh, various letters they'd written to their MPs. I took that and wrote uh, a modified version of it that was relevant to me because a particular person who, who a friend of mine, their partner's trans and they wrote, wrote uh, something very passionate to their MP. I took wrote a kind of similar version based on their template. Uh, my MP, fortunately, is is pro trans people. So it was like, yeah, sure. Um, obviously, in, in other places, uh, you need to kind of make it felt that, um, you know, if you've got a conservative MP who's, who's on that kind of side is again it you're like come on <laughs> like stick get with the times um but yes so there was a there was a a committee meeting um uh that happened when i say a committee i mean a government committee uh, and they had various people from both sides presenting information i would recommend watching um the the version which will be in the linked tweet uh you can find that it was the half two um uh evidence session uh, i would watch that i would not encourage you to watch the one afterwards because uh i know i know some people who saw that i'd said oh you should watch this followed on and were like oh that was bad and i was like yeah i watched the first like 10 minutes and yeah there's some bad opinions there um uh but yes uh, the first the first that first bit the two from 230 very informative and good uh um you know various trans academics involved it, it was it was good um and uh that that was just kind of a thing i wanted to mention this is an ongoing fight uh for the trans community and uh they need people to understand that at this time you know so you need to help people if people have been having a bit of a rough time you'll have seen various things there was recently this thing about puberty blockers that went through the courts as well oh, that's it just dumb in my opinion sorry i was reading articles about it in one oddly worded bbc article which kind of presented the entire case that 19 is it something like 99 percent of the time there's absolutely no issue with using them but the article seemed to stress more on the one percent of the time it didn't and that's maybe what swayed the courts and it was yeah i'm i'm talking from as you can see i haven't done the widest deepest reading into these things but my opinions are still strong dumb to discriminate against trans people (laughs) yeah pretty pretty much uh yes there was a person who came forward and was involved in that court case who had had a bad experience but it was more that like like i think if you look through i mean even on the bbc who i mean i'm I'm not saying they're perfect about writing about trans issues but like compared to say like certain newspapers uh i won't bother to mention um like you know that they're not they don't have a they don't have a an official position of being anti as it were um, although yes people have criticized their reporting in the past and i'm sure people have plenty of examples of where the bbc have got things wrong um but it's, it's that general problem where they're trying to get both sides and the thing is like there aren't really two sides here one thing is clearly the correct thing to do and the other thing like yes as you say like one if one person in a hundred has a bad experience but like if 99 people out of 100 have a good experience like there's always these uh d- decisions to make in like medicine and it, it seems like such a so low incident rate uh, at least that's my understanding of it but like, the whole point of the blockers is they are allow you to defer actually making the decision because legally under 18 uh kids can't make that decision anyway is the point but the idea was that they could be put on puberty blockers um and then then defer the decision until they're 18 without having significant changes to their bodies which will affect their dysphoria and make it worse uh and yeah uh, again there's a lot of stuff to read up on here but uh i think it's fairly easy to find the articles explaining it so i'll try and put some good links in i'll try and find something but uh, i'll have to pull it together i don't have it in front of me right now but i just wanted to bring that up because it's like it's an ongoing fight uh, to improve uh, the life of trans people in the UK, and there's been a f- it's been a few bad weeks uh, from the purposes, you know, from legislation and stuff. So that's kind of a bright light that 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 uh, evidence session. <laughs> As I say, don't watch the one afterwards because it was terrible. Um, but yes, uh, I just wanted to highlight that. So uh, our next headline is from the Telegraph: masks for a year despite the vaccine. Uh, yeah. So the big COVID news that's sort of broken whilst we've been away is that there is now a vaccine, and the UK was one of the first nations in the world to basically say yes, this vaccine is safe to be given to the general public, and they've started the mass vaccination program. Uh, it started off with some people over ninety. Um, so we had the first two uh, about a week ago. I remember that the second guy who got vaccinated was called William Shakespeare. 
Shakespeare as well, which was just like, uh, yes, ev- everyone, everyone was talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, it's just like wow, where did you find him from? Um, but yeah, here you've got the so there was quite like a lot of jubilation on the front pages, um, but it was worth just pointing out the Telegraph's reaction to this that despite the fact that we've got this vaccine, uh, Chris Whitty has said that there might we might have to wear masks for a year despite that for a number of reasons, one of which is getting the vaccine out on that scale to that many people is an exercise that I don't think has ever been done in the country, particularly not one that has to be done um, so quickly and so widely because, you know, everybody has their kids have their jabs every year, right? But that's a very small proportion of the population and you can spread that out over a year. Everybody needs to have this COVID vaccine if we want to go back to normal, um, which is feels weird just saying that at all now. What is normal after a year of this? Um, it does feel bizarre to think we could go back to um, back that way. So yeah, um, jubilation, but also a bit of realism there from the Telegraph about how this is still going to be an uphill battle and we're not out of the woods yet. And I feel that's kind of been reflected in some of the news that's broken like early this week about London and the tears. Um, I think it might just oh, be... yes. Yeah, it might be worth mentioning. I mean, you, are you going to be in a tier three area from tomorrow? Is yes, right? um, it is from tomorrow. Yeah. And the- the thing that's a bit weird about that is that I am very close to the border uh, where I am. I'm 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 in Zone Six. I'm one of those people where you know my train station is the last place you can get an Oyster card uh, to. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm as almost as far out of London as you can be while still being in London. Um, and it is a bit ridiculous. Like I know we've talked about this before. Like I, I completely understand why they're putting London into Tier Three. Probably should have been Tier Three before. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm honest, uh, I'm not going to be ranting and railing against it. I think it's the right decision. Um, and it just seems a bit silly that they announced it one day early. I mean, I know they're trying to be like, oh, well, well as soon as we made the decision, but like you could have made the decision seven days ago. But the fact you're doing it one day ahead of everything else with the tier three seems a bit weird. Yeah. Um, and I, I can say from personal experience today that the trains were a lot busier than usual uh, when I went in. Uh, and I would not be surprised if that's because people are like, oh, well, I can go into the office for something essential. People who haven't been because they're like, oh, we're in tier two, it'll be fine. And they want to have a, a final trip in before they're stuck in tier three. Um, and yeah, the thing that's funny is of course that tier two is a few hundred meters from my house um but i can't i'm advised not to go into that area like uh, because of how things are set up i mean other than if i go for a walk on my own outside in which case i think that's fine because i won't be in, in, encountering anyone else um but and, and i'll be outside uh, but um yeah the other i don't really need to go in that direction because all the shops are the other way basically so uh, it, it's not like it's a, a difficult thing to follow. It just, it's kind of, it shows you how ridiculous it can be if you're near the edge of something. Um, because before we were the same tier, but um, Surrey is not the same as us now. Uh, despite the fact we our address is in Surrey, but we're still in London. It's it's that kind of weird edge case. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we're fine with it. We were going to be staying in anyway. The plan was to stay in. Um, uh, I mentioned in the pre-show that I've had a lateral flow test and I'll be having another one on Friday uh, because they're not 100% accurate. So the set up is you book in to have two three days apart just to be 100% well not 100% certain but to be more certain uh, than not that you don't have it um so my plan had already been to be like on the 18th i would have that second test i would then know my status and could basically hole up uh with the aim to meet family at some point over christmas but our plan was to have christmas day at home without seeing family and do do like a zoom christmas meetup we just need to make sure presents are sent to the right people you know um and i don't know if you've seen what the queue for the post office is like but it will be easier to drop it will be easier <laughs> to drop off parcels in person socially distanced outside following all the rules um but obviously now we need to discuss how that worked because different family members in different tiers but i think it is still technically possible under the rules uh, for someone to come here meet me outside and we do a quick exchange kind of thing so so you know it's still gonna happen it was always gonna be a weird christmas but fortunately for us we hadn't like planned to go home like i know some people had who were in tier two areas that are now tier three um so and and it also i mean on that note it does sound like they're gonna change the rules about christmas as well it there's rumors today yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if by the time this airs or by next week, they're saying, oh, the bubble thing over Christmas was a bad idea, which I think a lot of us thought it was when it was announced. Yeah, but it's, I mean, people have made plans, haven't they? You know, it, it's trying to make plans for Christmas and seeing what you're going to do. And boy, was there a discussion about how things would work with bubbles and our Christmas and we're in tier two. Um, it does seem a little, from my opinion, I can see it being very frustrating if you're in London where you've been in tier two and now they're saying we're going to have to go up to tier three because maybe tier two wasn't strict enough but then in a week's time it becomes tier zero effectively as bubbles mix across the capital as they could under the 
the current Christmas rules, um, running from like the 23rd to the 28th, whatever that is. And then you go back into tier three. It does seem to be like this weird juxtaposition of like, we're going to lock down, oh, but then release it up and then lock down again. Um, it doesn't seem to be like a, a steady flow. And it's it's a terrible position for the for the government to be in. I think we were discussing um, casually the, this morning about how they're in they're in between a rock and a hard place, aren't they? They've promised everybody they can have their Christmas. And that was kind of one of the reasons for the national lockdown in November. Or at least that's the way that it was sold to the general public. It was do this and we'll get through Christmas. Um, but now that might not be enough. Um, we've talked previously on this podcast about how other faiths have had to change their plans at the last minute in particular, wasn't it? Uh, Eid, the, the, you know, Bradford went into lockdown like on the eve of, which even at the time it was saying that that was the equivalent of you having everything ready for Christmas Eve. You know, you're going around your mum's house for a big turkey and then being told, actually, no, on Christmas Day, you're going to have to spend it inside. People could be looking at that situation because we were meant to go around somebody else's house for Christmas dinner. And if the Christmas rules suddenly change, then we're going to be looking for some turkey Twizzlers or something because very unlikely that we'll um, get a turkey or anything like close to that, this close to Christmas. So yeah, um, (laughs) strange time strange year um, but the vaccine is positive news and i'm hoping that by fingers fingers crossed like yeah fingers crossed like i think the conventional wisdom or as far as i've read around is like maybe by summer next year you may see some form of normality coming back in with the amount of vaccines that have gone through the general population but uh, yes it'll be it'll be sometime we can't we can't celebrate just yet um, which has kind of been the government watchword hasn't it on the past week on the tv they're saying it's great news but we've got to get through winter and yeah i can see that being a big challenge for the country uh, yeah no definitely and I mean, yeah, winter being inside, I mean, I think all the advice that we had over the summer still applies, you know, it's better to, if you're doing anything, be outside uh, and have have that, you know, airflow and everything. And being inside, we know is just a bad idea. So the idea of getting together with your vulnerable relatives is not high on my list. Um, And yeah, I appreciate if people have have, have made plans, they're going to be upset. But A, I'd rather they tell us sooner rather than later, because as you say, like, I mean, the the thing that happened with Eid was, I I mean, I'm sure it was in some way avoidable. (laughs) I definitely don't think it was unavoidable uh and you wouldn't want to make that mistake again uh i think we saw at the time they shouldn't have been making that mistake then of doing it like the day before so i think uh, uh, i think yeah uh, the, the sooner they get out the message that no christmas is going to have to be different the better i think but given what's currently going on with our government who knows um so <laughs> on that note i think we should maybe move into our main story Brexit. It's here again. Uh, so uh, maybe maybe we need to give people some background on why it is we are once again talking about Brexit. Uh, and I don't just mean the background that is our entire back catalogue, just <laughs> maybe a potted summary. Yeah. Um, so I thought it would be good to start with about like roughly a year from now. So we're just over a year on from the election, an election which was won on the promise of Boris Johnson's oven ready deal. He said it a million billion times during that election. Um, and I think it's fair to say that as a result of his basic message of let's get Brexit over and done with, haven't you had enough of us talking about it for the last four years? He was able to win the election by 80 plus seats, giving him a mandate to push through that um, first deal he had with the European Union, which meant we could leave in January of this year. Um, But a lot of people kind of assumed that the basis of that withdrawal agreement would also make up what our eventual trade deal with the EU was going to be. Um, And that's kind Kind of where we've got to now, where the government appears to be turning back on that, and in my opinion, rewriting history. There is a particularly infuriating interview with um, James Cleverly, one of the Conservative Party's chairman, and Sky News, where he basically said, "Oh no, I think we made it very clear to the general public that when we were talking about the oven ready deal, that was the withdrawal agreement. We weren't suggesting that we were definitely going to do a deal with the EU for trade, etc." Um, and I don't know. That's from my memory. That's not what it felt like at the time would you agree with that like if that was the message it was kind of one said to the side and through like through the side of a mouth somewhere because that's not how i read it no i mean yeah the the message was very much oven ready deal we're ready to go job done yeah precisely and i think what kind of what worked for boris and one of the reasons he won the election last time was that even before you know when he was before the general election was called and before we were able to get that extension and boris put his idea of the withdrawal agreement to parliament 
there was a lot of discussion that this was when the UK was going to no deal. We weren't going to, the transition period was going to stop. The EU would lose patience with us. And Boris Johnson didn't seem to be able to do a deal. All the papers were getting ready for it. And then out of the blue, boom, he does a deal. And I think that was part of making it appear like a great win for the UK. Um, I want to stress now, and it's a point that I've picked up from other podcasts I've been listening to on the subject of Brexit, but the UK seems determined to win these negotiations. You win them or you walk away. And my argument back was be that you, you don't win negotiations, neither side wins. You both... The whole point of a negotiation is compromise. Precisely, yeah. There's got to be a little bit of give and take. And if you don't do any give or any take, then you're going to walk away with a no deal. So the fact that Boris was able to spin that deal into a win by saying, ah, you, you said I couldn't do it, but I did. Um, I think we're kind of seeing that same rhetoric replay itself, particularly over the events of the last week. Because trust me, I know we we delayed doing this podcast for a number of days and for a number of reasons as the clock slowly ticked down to Sunday. Um, but the way I'm going to reflect on Brexit tonight is quite different from how I would have reflected it on Friday last week or, or Saturday, because um, yeah, things keep changing so fast, particularly when we get to the end of these negotiations. Well, I mean, I mean, just just for posterity here, I'm sure everyone who's listening to us now is aware of the headlines. But you know, for anyone listening back on this in the future, a time capsule into December 2020, <laughs> we were like, we we were sat there a bit late on our fortnightly recording schedule and I was like Rob when should we record and uh, the back and forth was basically like well there's this discussion going on um, and I think it was was it Tuesday last week where they were having their their big meeting with lots of fish um, <laughs> hilariously uh, where they had a lovely dinner and the whole point was Boris was going to talk um, to uh, Ursula von der Leyen and be like okay here's the deal they they talk it out over dinner have have some cigars and go home kind of you know how how people imagine political deals are done, um, and then uh, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't done, um, and so it was like oh well the absolute last day it could possibly be done is Sunday, and then it, we were going to record Sunday. We get to Sunday, and oh they've moved the goalposts again. Uh, I mean the absolute absolute last date is the thirty first of December. And I think my favourite comment I've heard from listening to uh, Brexit cast, as was now newscast, was um, uh, someone in government saying, oh, well, why have we got this ridiculous deadline of the 31st of December? And that's because that's the law you passed. Like, yep. <laughs> it was all the current government's fault. The only reason we have this arbitrary, silly deadline is because of the current government. And uh, We've yeah. talked about <laughs> that before with Theresa May, like obviously delaying leaving the EU and the withdrawal agreement hurt Theresa May and the Conservative Party a lot. We remember when we were talking about those local election results where people really seemed to punish the two main parties and go to third parties because they were fed up of the transition period being extended. But that original transition period and, you know, we had all this Article 50 talk was entirely self-imposed by that government as well. They seem to be determined on giving themselves unreasonable deadlines and then being surprised when they can't get a deal in time it is... <laughs> It's maddening looking at it from the sidelines. We go like, Ooh. yeah, and I mean, like, I, I understand the concept of setting yourself a personal deadline that's earlier than the actual deadline, so that you get your work done. It's a technique that works on myself. So I set arbitrary deadlines that don't mean anything well in advance of when I need to hand something in, and I get the work done. But that doesn't need to apply to international treaty. <laughs> yes. And when I'm sure I've mentioned it several times before, but when you are looking at the type of deal that we want to make, I mean, the government has often talked about a Canada style trade deal. Uh, you have to be reminded that it took the EU and Canada five, seven years to get that through. So to try and do the same with the UK does seem to be a little mad. Um, I think maybe what the UK would like is that they can copy paste the Canada deal, replace with UK, add some bits about fish, and then you'll be fine. But as we will go on to discuss, there's a lot of reasons why the EU would struggle ex to accept a Canada-style deal from the UK. I can see a lot of reasons why they would reject that outright, and that's one reason why negotiations are rumbling on into the 11th hour. Yeah, and I mean, I think we, we're going to get onto fishing, but I think I think possibly the most interesting thing about all this is it seems like, or at least the noises we've heard, are that 95% of things are covered. Yeah. Which is impressive, you know, given what we're saying about it taking five years, seven years to make international deals. We're basically most things are agreed on and it's just these stupid uh, i mean yeah, sorry i could say these sticking points i think they are stupid sticking points given how much we have to lose if this all goes wrong um uh and i mean the eu will lose stuff too but they're going to be better off than us because they're a massive 
internal market. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite simply. Um, so yeah, so should we go on about? Should we unpack the main sticking points then? So we've said that it's ninety five percent done, um, but we've touched on it already. Fishing is one of the big points. Um, and it's one that from, I think if you were outside of the UK, it looks a little bizarre that we are getting so um, obsessed with our fishing industry. But from our point of view, from the UK's point of view, they say that the right to fish our own waters was an integral part of the Leave 2016 campaign and was an often like one of the big talking points amongst all Eurosceptics was we want to take back control of our fishing rights. Uh, Which the, sorry, is one ahead. of these things, sorry, it's one of these things where I, I don't know where it came from i mean i'm sure there must be a fishing lobby right in the same way that there were a lot of people who were farmers who, who said oh we, you know we don't need you uh, getting in the way of our farming uh, although it turns out they're all going to lose a load of subsidies and it's gonna be really bad for them uh um, but i would argue yeah. it's more it's kind of cultural i would say if you would say like oh britain what do we do we rule the waves we're an island nation we fish like it, we eat fish and chips. That's our national dish. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. No. I. I understand. I understand that as well. That that's there. But I like it. Kind of like when it got mentioned the first time, I was like, "Do we do much fishing? Like we're not Norway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I know we're surrounded by water, but also at the same time, I was like, I'm not aware that we're that's a massive part of our economy. And as it turns out, it's a third the size of Games Workshop, <laughs> uh, which uh, was a fact that I think has been doing the rounds uh, this week because it's so funny uh, yeah. that, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> you know, that we're going on about all this fishing and actually it's it's smaller than like what is a decent sized gaming company coming yeah. out of the UK. What is it? I read there's a joke somewhere which was something along the lines of, you know, Games Workshop owns earns three times more than the UK fishing industry. Um, one, of course, is a, you know, a fantasy game played by middle-aged white men to enact out their wartime fantasies and the and the other one is games workshop um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but <laughs> uh one of the main sticking points is where do we draw the line is france allowed to fish in our waters etc etc this has led to some what i would say mad headlines coming out like wednesday thursday where there were threats of gunboats to be sent into the sea to turn back french fishermen if there was a no deal scenario which is kind of why do you want to effectively declare war on one of your nato allies and you know you should be close with these people rather than fighting with them you don't want to have gunboats to turn back fishermen as russian subs go underneath you and do you know whatever in in your waters so yes it's one of the it's one of the main sticking points uh it's one that gets brought up a lot. But personally, I feel that because it's more of a, as we've discussed, because it's more of a cultural point and less of an economic one, um, the economic argument to save our fishing isn't that sound. In fact, if we went through a no deal and we fished all the waters that we could, we definitely have a surplus of fish that we need to export to Europe anyway. So it wouldn't really be in our benefit to do that. I, I feel it's one of the first things to slip if we do get a deal to come through at this point. Um, it be a really tough sell particularly to the um the hardcore brexiteers who see it as one of the founding principles of their movement um but ultimately i feel it's the one where you can brush it to one side if you are a pragmatic government determined on doing the deal. i do just want to point our listeners to an amazing wikipedia article on the fishery protection squadron uh, which is the name for the part of the Royal Navy designed for protecting our fish. Uh, this has been going since 1379. Uh, currently, there are eight ships uh, in this. Notable com commanders, Horatio Nelson. So, yes. Um, also, uh, may I point you to halfway down this article where we have the first Cod War <laughs> and then the second and third Cod Wars in what may be one of the best articles I've just come across by accident on, you, uh, on, on Wikipedia while searching for this. <laughs> Um, so yes, uh, yeah. I mean, okay, maybe this whole fish fishing uh, protection thing is bigger than I than I was aware of. But yes, those headlines were absolutely uh, ridiculous. Um, uh, absolutely ridiculous. Like saying, you know, we're going to barricade the ocean and stuff. And it's like, well, we don't have that many ships. Uh, and and I think for people who who constantly go on about how we, you know, we rule the waves and all of this, like we don't have all those boats we had in World War Two. You know, we've got rid of a lot of them. Um, but yes, uh, yes. <laughs> an ongoing thing um let's move on from fish before i i get distracted again um so that that seems like that's definitely something where it seems silly to me like 
as I said, it, it's a big deal for some people, but it's not a massive part of our economy. It seems like a lot of effort is going into protecting something quite small. And like, I don't know how we see that, you know, we, we presumably do a lot of fishing in EU waters as well. And uh, a bit, there has to be a bit of back and forth there, I feel. Uh, the next thing, though, is I think something that's more kind of what we've discussed a lot when we've talked about, you know, how you can't have your cake and eat it with Ireland and stuff. And um, this is the concept of the level playing field. Yeah. So this is the idea that when you've got two trading partners close to one another, as the EU and Britain will be, you want them to share a common set of standards within both. Um, or at least that's how the EU sees it. Because unlike a Canada deal or anything like that, the EU would be concerned about having a major trading partner that's not bound by their rules, undercutting them and being able to be, you know, provide cheaper labour, for example, or maybe really undercut them on financial rules to make UK like a, a, a tax haven. Something that could really undermine the whole European project. The EU is obviously keen not to have that go on on their doorstep. Um, there's also other regulations you would have on things like food, like food quality standards, etc., where it makes sense if you want to trade with that country that you're aligned in that way. Because if your food trading standards are, if your food standards are lower in the UK and you try to export that to the EU and the EU is just going to reject it because we don't take chlorinated chicken, thank you very much, just to pull an example out of the air, um, it makes sense for both sides to have similar standards. Um, so you, you can have that free movement of the, the, the movement of goods and services is far simpler um, for your trading agreement. This is where I can kind of see the Brexiteers point of view, because one of the reasons for leaving the EU was so they wouldn't have to be bound by Brussels rules and regulations. There was a lot, you know, talking about our Brussels EU bureaucrats saying how much how powerful my vacuum cleaner can be. Um, now in the UK, I can make my vacuum cleaner less energy efficient, but boy, can it suck a lot more. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, that, that they left. And so UK feels that if it's going to survive out of the EU trading bloc, they need to be more flexible. They need to be able to be a bit more creative with their rules and be separate from the EU because it's not just about, it's not only about being competitive around the world, um, it's also that you've got that freedom from the EU to make those laws as you see fit. And I think that was one of the biggest reasons um, why people felt they wanted to leave the EU in the first place. Um, on top of this, the EU wants to add this thing called a ratchet clause, which means that at first you could agree that, yeah, our standards are the same, we'll keep them like that, which would be very easy to do if we're on, you know, if January the 1st, we got the trade deal and suddenly we're out of the EU and we've got that trade deal in place, because guess what? Nothing would really change between our trade deals, so it would make the transition of goods and services a lot easier. Well, the EU argues that, hey, if the if we as the EU decide to raise our standards in the future, the UK should automatically raise their standards as well, which is where the Brexiteers really really start to not like it because then how long are you tied to the EU and what they say? Isn't that basically being the same as being part of the EU and having to abide by European Commission decisions and European Parliament decisions because they might just keep raising standards to try and make the UK uncompetitive in some markets? Um, it's, it's a big sticking point and I think there's already been talk that the EU might be willing to drop that ratchet cause in order to secure a deal from the UK and I feel it's the one where there's the most you can see most of the economic downsides for the UK having to abide by EU rules in some cases. I think it's sensible for trade and services when you are when when you are involved in any trade negotiation, you'll always have to have some alignment on standards because otherwise one party is going to reject the others. And what's the point of having a trade dealment? You know, it's a trade agreement in the first place. Um, but I can see why. Yeah, part of that big argument was we want to be free from these EU laws. What's the point of being free if we've just got to abide by them, abide by them because we've signed up with this deal? Um, yeah, so I'd say that is the biggest sticking point, and that's one of the reasons why the talks have advanced as much as they should. But at the same time, these talks are still ongoing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Um, I think it's and, and I think we have mention of some progress, which is why, like, I think I think if there was no progress at all, the you would have just said go away um because you know they have their own interests to protect at the end of the day um the attempts at a deal are going on so so what progress has there been that's been announced as we said we said there's like 95 percent of um 95 percent or so sounds done but there's also been a few fairly big announcements in the last week that we were i mean let's start maybe with northern ireland which i think was a surprise after all this concern that that would be really difficult what happened there yeah 
essentially the UK and the EU have come to an agreement in Northern Ireland that even in the event of no deal, they will allow goods to cross over the border relatively unchecked. So that can be a smooth transition between the only land border then existing between the EU and the UK. Um, The Northern Ireland would still have to stay within that single market customs union. So there is effectively still a border down the Irish Sea. um, But that was already what was stated as part of the withdrawal agreement in the first place. Previously, Listeners might remember that the UK tried to undermine the withdrawal agreement by passing the Internal Markets Bill that essentially undid a lot of that stuff. And that's why it was so controversial. That's why it broke international law, because it was going against a a treaty we'd formally signed with the EU that we wouldn't try and break this. Um, Essentially, the UK and the EU have come to an agreement that, yeah, we'll, we'll drop those controversial bits from the Internal Markets Bill. Goods will be able to pass relatively freely between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Uh, there will still be some checks, uh, but the UK was adamant that they didn't want any sort of EU border station in Northern Ireland. They felt that that would cause tension or particularly look particularly bad for the UK. Uh, so essentially, the EU has agreed to hot desk and borrow places off the UK so they can conduct these checks. Uh, this was all negotiated by the man himself, Michael Gove, uh, who said in an... <laughs> you hear some things, like, it's very rarely that I watch, like, a politician say something and I'm instantly angry. Um, but Michael Gove said something particularly striking when he'd come to this agreement. He explained it and he said, well, essentially, what Northern Ireland will be getting is they'll get the best of both worlds. They'll be able to get trade from the UK and trade from the EU seamlessly, which led many people screaming at their mobile phone screens saying... We had that best of both worlds. We we had it <laughs> until you decided to leave the European Union. Why are you selling this as a good thing now? Why can't we have that too? Um, so it was slightly bizarre to hear Michael Gove, one of the prime Brexiteers, selling it in that sense. Uh, but I think it does go a way to show that the both sides were very keen to avoid any hard border situation in Northern Ireland happening. And that's been a quite a, a positive note of how sincere that you like how serious the two sides are with dealing with one another. If they wanted to be truly vindictive, either side could have refused and maybe forced a hard border. But that does seem like the way we've talked about that in the past, it does seem unimaginable and would call, undoubtedly cause tension. Um, so it is a big relief that that has passed. It won't be completely plain sailing for Northern Ireland. The agreement only deals with goods. So if there's any service changes or people banking between the two areas, Areas, that type of industry could be t- it particularly hard if there is a no Brexit um, and that the effects will be seen the most there between people who trade and work and do services across Northern Ireland and into Ireland. Um, but at least it means that food won't be rotting at the border as they struggle to try and get in. So that's been mm. one positive piece of news, I think, that's come out of the, uh, the negotiations so far. For people who are wondering how long we've been talking about what might happen with Northern Ireland uh, and, and the Irish border, uh, I just found that it's episode one. 7 of our podcast where we first talked about that so that's uh, a good three years ago uh not to the day because our sh- recording pattern has slightly shifted but yeah we, we've been worrying about wondering about that for a long time and kind of surprising still how sudden that was we just kind of you know the government kind of came up um so uh next thing that got discussed was uh flights um how, how are they going to solve flights and i think there were also some other suggestions from the eu not just flights about how things could progress in the event of a no deal to prevent there being absolute chaos yeah so i, I think i just picked up on flights because it's the easiest one and it's one that's been, that's been discussed in the past essentially like uk planes would have to have permission from the eu to land in you know their territory and vice versa uh, but obviously if suddenly everything shut down on january 1st that would cause huge disruption so there's already been discussion between the two sides basically saying yeah you can have a temporary six month allowance to have our planes in your country and you can have yours in ours um but again that that's not necessarily stability six months is still a short-term fix but it shows that both sides are unwilling to stop things entirely um i don't know what you've heard about goods and services particularly at ports because it was my impression that even I know that the postal service and life is weird at the moment that you know people are being stretched as people order things more um, for Christmas gifts etc and that might lead to some of the ports getting particularly busy um, but I know that there's been, been uh, chaos at the ports recently with like food rotting coming in um, 
I think that was a result of France adding like an extra 30 second check to some goods in preparation for Brexit. And it just showed how how what little a change can happen to have a real effect on your supply line going forward. Um, if a no deal was to come into effect on January the 1st, I would fear for how much we would get stuff in. Um, but I don't know if you've heard differently about what they propose to get around that in the short term. Uh, the thing I was referencing, and may- maybe some of it has now been superseded by the ongoing negotiations, is there was basically the EU release a set of in the event of no deal here's some things that could be kept going for like six months as they currently are basically a a way of saying let's you know if everything goes to pot here's a way to give you a chance to negotiate a bit more but i don't know if the current state of the negotiations has overridden that i just know that was the story about a week ago i think that seems very likely um there's been some talk um, and some quite uh, big headlines uh, about the fact that uh, there were one that sticks in my mind in particular was the Daily Mail, I think, saying Angela Merkel wants Britain to ca- crawl through broken glass. And there's a, a theme from those papers that the EU wants to punish the UK for leaving the EU. Um, personally, I don't think that is true. And I think you can see from these temporary six month agreements that they are willing to put in place. You can see there is some good faith there, because if they really wanted to mess with us, then cutting off all of that access, refusing to deal on Northern Ireland, like that would be the ultimate punishment. But the fact that there is a negotiation there shows that I think that both sides are negotiating in good faith. Uh, The biggest sticking point is that uh, (laughs) I believe that the UK media, or at least some parts of the UK media, is trying to frame it as EU bad, UK good. Um, Boris needs to stick it to them and make them crack and make them accept a deal from the mighty, mighty UK. And yeah, feel that it's that kind of rhetoric that almost makes a no deal more likely, or at least seems to be happening the past few days. Uh, That rhetoric has notably gone down a little bit since the Sunday extension, is my impression. Um, There's still a bit of back and forth, of course, um, there always will be, but we'll likely see that ratchet up as the 31st approaches or whenever. Um, I think my big question is that (laughs) when we were talking about film, when we were talking about recording this podcast, uh, I said, oh, it, it probably needs to get done by Thursday because it needs time to go through Parliament because they must delay parliament for christmas they must all go on holiday but i imagine that now they'll have to bring everybody back to vote on a bill that goes through because it's got to be approved by both the eu and uk parliaments before it goes into law and the clock is certainly ticking on that it would have to be a super speedy resolution to get it through Parliament. yeah um i i have struggled to find uh the thing i was looking for But basically, I'm pretty certain that sometime uh, last last week, there was like the EU basically said, here's what we could offer you. Uh, and they kind of put it out alongside the um, discussions so that people could see that they were trying to be reasonable. I think that was that was the idea. Um, uh, but to try and downplay this, oh, the UK is doing the best best thing here, uh, rhetoric that's going around. And that was when um, Boris was saying the no deal was very, very likely. And before he said there'd be an Australia type deal, which, as we know, is a no deal. <laughs> And did you hear the ex-Australian PMs um, Robinson talk about that? Uh, sorry, Scott Morrison talk about that. Uh, um, no, I mean I've <laughs> I've seen there's something from Malcolm Turnbull basically he's oh, okay. talking about it. But, well, may- uh, maybe seen may- maybe it was Malcolm Turnbull then. It was one of the ex-Australian um, PMs saying, oh, "I had an Australia type deal with the EU, and trust me, you don't want that." <laughs> we you know like we had some very specific agreements about wine and some things we exported to them. But it was still a real struggle to get goods and services from them that we wanted on WTO terms, which is essentially what an Australia style deal is. Um, I've talked about it in the past, but the reason they call it an Australia style deal um, is because you think of Australia and you think it's all nice and sunny and they're like us. That'll be fine. Um, but they might as well call it a Mongolia style deal or an Afghanistan <laughs> yes, deal. Yeah. It's it's the same either way. I think just Australia type is to give it a, you know, a fancy, you know, oh, that's not so bad. Australia, Australia still is is nice a nice country yeah. um, maybe one of the maybe one of the reasons why they you know don't need a certain deal with the eu is because they are on the other side of the world literally um yeah it's, but, they're, uh, they're not their nearest uh trading partner correct yeah, the yeah. Case for us. yeah or their nearest um, 23 trading partners or whatever it is um, yeah yeah so that's why it changed i have now found that article i'll maybe we'll talk about it here it might cut this i don't know um, but it was the EU's contingency plans um, because there was a chance of no deal. So there'd be the provision of certain air services between the UK and EU for six months, provided the UK does the same. Allow aviation safety certificates to be used in EU aircraft without disruption to avoid grounding. Ensure basic connectivity for road freight and passenger transport for six months, provided the UK reciprocates. And to allow the possibility of reciprocal fishing access for UK and EU vessels in each other's waters for one year or until an agreement is reached. 
And then I think there was a lot of Brexiteers saying, oh, no, that's unacceptable. We want our waters back now. Uh, and it's like, well, you're going to solve it then? Because um, <laughs> yeah. I think that, that that's the thing. So I think this was them trying to show, look, we're being reasonable here. We've got these ideas in place. Where basically the rules continue as they have, assuming we also do it in return. But then I think uh, the way the UK has been acting uh, has maybe put a damper on that thought. It, it, it does sound... I mean, that's the EU saying, yes, things can continue as the way they are for an extended period of time. But adding that mm. fishing one at the end does seem to be a particular jab to Brexiteers, as in, even if you get a no deal, if you want the basic rights to stuff, you'll still have to give up a little bit of your fishing waters, um, which maybe is another push for them to be like, hey, do the proper deal and give a little concession on your fishing waters because that will be a lot easier for you rather than this bare-bones agreement that we'll have to get us through six months um so rob in your honored opinion <laughs> uh do you think we're going to have a deal or a no deal given we have as we've said 16 days to approve and pass such a thing so i think we are going to get a deal and it's precisely because i don't think the uk is ready for a no deal by any stretch of the imagination um particularly with all the stress that businesses have had through uh covid19 um and you know shutdowns that will be happening we've talked about london going into tier three and the economic repercussions of that will be huge to add another layer of stuff that business has to deal with on january the first to me seems deeply irresponsible by the government and the fact that all all we've seemed to done so far to prepare business is kind of run a couple of adverts on tv saying you should go to this website and find out what you've got to do um and speaking to sorry i haven't spoken to business leaders but hearing um other business leaders talk about what that entails is they go to the website they click a link they go down this little rabbit hole and then the information just stops and they don't know what to do and the reason for that is basically the eu is still sorry the uk is still in negotiations with the eu they're not quite sure what no deal will look like until you've got until you definitely know you're not going to do a deal right because if you were going to no deal and you were determined on it i think boris johnson would have declared when he originally said talks were over in the middle of october he would have said right no we're not doing a do we're not doing a deal now we've got two months to prepare the entire country for the shock that's about to happen right and that would be if you were going to do no deal responsibly you'd have to do it in that way shape or form if they get to the talks on the 31st and say shrug their shoulders and go sorry guys looks like it's a no deal then all these businesses that haven't had time to prepare or thought there was going to be a deal anyway will suddenly find themselves on the back foot and on top of that they've got all of the covid stuff that they're still recovering from uh, from 2020 um there was a recent survey done in october that said a third of all small businesses in the uk thought the brexit transition period would be extended which shows that like a lot of businesses definitely would be underprepared if this happened um we're already seeing chaos in the ports as i've said um there has been some leaked stories in the telegraph about the uk government willing to find billions of pounds to help industries affected by Brexit, you know, uh, farming, fisheries, etc. Uh, but it's worth pointing out the government has already spent a lot of money on furlough schemes, um, helping to support businesses during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, that would clearly only be extended even more if we have a no deal and the effects would be more acute. So why would you put your own people through that? Um, yeah, I, th I the, think the only, only thing I'd raise there is I did hear in a, when talking about coronavirus specifically, that the government like credit rating is still pretty good despite the fact uh, that they've spent so much money on coronavirus this year so getting an extra one billion might not be terribly hard from that point of view of course the thing is if there's then uh, economic decline due to brexit uh how easy will it be to, to you know maintain that credit rating because obviously it's bad when your country gets downgraded yes yeah precisely and <laughs> i think you've hit the nail on the head there it's it's fine at the moment but we've got a deal with europe and we'd probably be in the same boat as the rest of europe if we were trying to recover after covid in 2021 if we've also got no deal on top of that that maybe makes us a less attractive trade partner for potential people who want to help economic recovery or or lend us money and we can get through it um yeah i just i feel that covid has taken up a lot of people's thinking time this year with with good with good reason um and before then the headlines were dominated by brexit a year ago we were still talking about it and it seemed like a much bigger thing um and it dominated politics um now it's not people have rightly thought when it happened on january the 31st oh yeah okay 
I can kind of forget about that now, not remembering that we still have these talks to to go through. Uh, I also think that we're going to do a deal because Boris Johnson can make it appear like a win again for him by the fact that we've had so many headlines of it's going to be a no deal. We're definitely going to walk away. I'm being the strong man and, and, and walking away from all of this. Um, that if he pulls one out of the bag again, then he can sell that as a massive triumph of diplomacy. Like nobody thought I could do it. Everybody thought I was doing the wrong thing, but here I am saving the economy and I've got this concession for this tiny concession for fishermen or something along those lines where he can get one thing out of the EU and try and spin it as is a major win. Um, but as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, I feel that negotiations shouldn't be won by either side. It's something where you compromise and walk away and feel that both sides should be happy with it. It'll be interesting to see how um, the government tries to spin this. And, and and I deeply hope that we can get a deal because if in our next podcast I'm talking about the realistic prospect of what happens in a no deal, then yeah, we've, we've talked about it before and I think it is universally agreed that that is the worst of all worlds. Um, there were surveys conducted recently with like leave and remain voters and even amongst leave voters the majority of those want to deal with the EU they feel that a no deal is a bad idea and I would struggle to see Boris Johnson remaining very popular with the general populace if he was if he put the country through the pain of a no deal on top of everything else it's had to go through in in 2020 yes no I I, I don't think I have anything to say really here I think I agree with you uh, I think I, fingers crossed we get some kind of deal I think we've always that the position of this podcast has always been that we want some kind of deal obviously we wanted to, you know, not be in this position in the first place. <laughs> yeah. um, Would be easier. But give it, give it, yeah, given where we are, some kind of deal is better than no deal, in my opinion. And I think uh, precisely for the reasons that Brexiteers don't want a deal, I think some kind of deal would be better. Um, uh, just just a bit of levity, uh, I think, to, to add on the end. Um, I, I don't know if you're aware of r slash Brexit on um, uh, Reddit, but I only just discovered it. It's full of some jokes. I've posted a few in the chat, mostly memes, a bit of actual news, but, you know, Maybe that'll help you get through this trying time. <laughs> also, they do have the uh, the brilliant. Uh, they have a, a tag project reality, uh, which is for like uh, real, real things where people are suddenly realizing their problems. From the Daily Mail, uh, who com- who actively campaigned for Brexit, it's enough to make you choke on your sangria. From New Year, half a million Brits can only stay in their holiday homes on the continent for three months at a time, and as these families tell, their dreams have turned to dust. It's almost like that's what you voted for. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily those families in in the continent, but like that's literally the point of Brexit. Yeah. What did you expect to happen? <laughs> you can't keep your holiday home in the Algarve while also wanting Brexit. Uh, I believe there was yeah. a there was a mail article also run about like if there's a no deal Brexit, ten things you can do to help the British economy, all of that jazz. Um, and number six or seven on this list was like buy a second home, which may um, say something to who. <laughs> But how realistic that list is for people who supported Brexit. Was it really a rising up of like the lower classes um, in order to you know reject the EU or was it mostly a rich person's game so that they could buy a second home? Um, it's just a very odd article um, all involved. But it didn't seem very in touch with the common man at that point or you know a young person struggling to buy their first home, never mind get a second one in the country and trying to... Uh, flip it when it <laughs> when it goes um it all goes sour sorry these these memes are very good memes yes the best memes we have the best memes only the best memes here um, so uh i think before we get distracted by memory we've been recording long enough uh uh thank you as always for listening uh you can find us at forward slash r forward slash unparliamentary uh while you're over there subscribing to our brexit uh you can find us at parliamentary.observer our website where you'll find all our episodes you can comment on our episodes and you can subscribe uh through any podcast app but there's a whole load of links on the website uh you can find us on facebook as unparliamentary language you can find us on twitter and instagram at unpal podcast and i don't think there's anything else for me to say other than it's good night from me and it's good night from him bye 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 Hi, have you ever wondered what would happen if you took the schoolyard conversation of which one of my favourite fictional characters would win in a fight? Well, wonder no more. Join me, Chris, and my co-host Matt every other Sunday for Mishmash Mayhem, and you can find out. Rob's on the phone, Rob's on the phone, what shall we do, because Rob's on the phone. Here's a slight musical interlude. In the bleak midwinter. Alright, I'm back. Oh, I'd only just done the first verse. Of- <laughs> I happen to have 100 carols requires next week because I'm supposed to be... Well, I mean, I've not said I'm definitely doing it, but someone wanted some carols recorded for some services. I was like, I could maybe do that, but I haven't had any time because life. Um, so, yeah. <laughs>
You know what? Top, top, that's fine because in one of the most famous Christmas songs of all time, "Wonderful Christmas Time" by Paul McCartney, he suggests the children have practiced carols all year long, and then the children sing, and their words are "Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong," <laughs> which you'd expect more after an entire year of practice, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, but they were they were very good ding dongs. So, uh... <laughs> Part of you know the reason to leave the UK. Sorry, the, again. I almost hit disconnect as opposed to stop recording, which is the <laughs> thing I was supposed to do. <laughs>